goes on. Well, I don't like that guy. He's too cocky. Well, I, I like him. He's just confident. And so it's usually a matter of perspective, our own perspective. But what about in salvation? What about for your eternal destiny? Now, Paul has taught us in the book of Romans that we cannot be cocky when it comes to that because, again, it's not something we can achieve. The victory is not of our own. We, we cannot be cocky in the area of our personal salvation. However, Christians should be confident of their salvation. And that's based solely on the work of Christ. Not by our own efforts, not by our own goodness, our own morality. Our salvation is bound up in Jesus Christ. And because of who He is and what He has done, Christians can and should be confident of their eternal salvation. Let me invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6. And the Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this wonderful, powerful truth that You have given us. We thank You, God, that You have spoken to us, revealed to us our need. You've also revealed to us the solution. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. God, today we stand not on our own merit, but we stand on the power and on the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray today that every person in this room, every person within the sound of my voice would have a personal relationship with Jesus. That every one of us would humble ourselves, acknowledge we've got a need, and acknowledge that we cannot fix that, but also give God the glory and acknowledge that Jesus Christ has done the work for us. Lord, may we be found confident in Jesus. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we have been going through this sermon series through Romans, Paul has shown us that all of us are sinners. But sinners can become right with God. And Paul says that's only by faith. It's not by works, not by our own efforts, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. And that reality ought to give us a sense of, of subjective feelings. Paul talked about in chapter 5 here that we have peace with God, verse 1 that we have access to God in this grace in which we stand, verse 2. And then in verse 5, we have hope. And that hope does not disappoint. That hope does not put us to shame, especially in God's judgment, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And so that ought to give us a sense of security, a, a personal feeling of attachment to God. But what happens 
when those feelings aren't so strong. Just like in any relationship, you go through moments where you feel really close. There's other moments, perhaps because of actions you have done or actions the other person has done, that perhaps you don't feel as close. What happens then? Well, the true test of a relationship is that it perseveres in in spite of those times. And so as we think about our relationship with God, what about those times you don't feel saved? You don't feel close to God. What, what are we to do then? Are we to just, okay, I, I just need to work harder. I, I just need to uh, read my Bible more. I just need to do these things. Or, or we could do what Paul shows us here in this text. Being right with God, yes, there is a subjective sense to that that ought to change the way we feel and, and look at life. But this is grounded in an objective reality. Some things have happened that guarantee our relationship with God. And Paul talks about that. And we can be confident, first of all, in our past redemption and what has already taken place. We as Christians can be confident that we stand secure with God. Paul's talked about in verse 5, the love of God that's poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. And Paul then takes the next step and and he grounds that that feeling or that sense we have with historical reality that the Christian faith is not just some uh, pie in the sky and just uh, I wish things will work out well, but it's, it's rooted in something that has happened historically. And Paul shows that for us here. It is God's sovereign plan of redemption that brought this to pass. Verse 6, he says, For, again, it's connected with what he just said, God's love poured out on us. We, we do not uh, stand ashamed before God, but we have hope because, verse 6, while we were still helpless, literally while we were weak, while we, we could not fix our problems. And that's the reason why a lot of people stay mired in their troubles and their struggles and their problems because they can't admit that they're weak. They will not humble themselves. But Paul says, while we were helpless, spiritually, morally, we couldn't fix our our, our sin problem, while that was going on, at the right time, at the right time, Jesus talked about that in his life, John 12, 27, says, for this purpose I came to this hour. In God's calendar throughout history, there was an appointed time for Jesus to come and to live, and to die, and to rise again. For this hour, Jesus said, I have come. And also Galatians 4.4, Paul says, And when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. So in God's sovereign calendar, there was appointed a day and a time, and Christ came in accordance to what God Himself had planned And when the fullness of time came, at the right time, while we were helpless and hopeless, Christ died for the ungodly. That was by God's design. Jesus wasn't some helpless victim that just got swept away by circumstances around him, by by political turmoil. No, this was God's sovereign plan for Christ to come and to die for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? It's all of us. 
Paul has pointed that out clearly in the first few chapters of Romans. Christ came and he died for the ungodly. It's God's sovereign plan. It's also God's shocking plan if you think about it in human terms. Verse 7, he says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Just maybe. In reality, how many people in this world would you be willing to lay down your life for? Sometimes you hear you guys, guys tell their lady, I'll take a bullet for you. And you say, oh, isn't that so romantic, you know? They're just like, yeah, I'd do that for you. There's very few people in this world, truth be told, that I would lay down my life for. If we're all honest, we would agree with that. But it would usually be somebody that we felt was worthy of our sacrifice, would it not? Someone that we loved, someone that we had a personal attachment to, somebody that, that meant something to us. But would you do that for a total stranger? Would you do that for someone who hated you? you know, that's where, from our perspective, this is shocking. Christ dying for the ungodly makes no sense from our point of view. But again, this was by God's sovereign plan. It's God's shocking plan. And it's God's sacrificial plan. How this all took place, verse 8. But God, in opposition to what he just said in verse 7, our human love is limited. And usually it's self-centered. But God, he demonstrates his own love. He proves his own love. It's easy to say to somebody, I love you. And the words sometimes are just so cheap and meaningless. But God demonstrates His love. God proves to us that He is love. It's more than just talk. It's action. And it's, it's not self-centered. It's sacrificial. It's selfless. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, rebellious and undeserving, while we were shaking our fists at God and saying, God, I hate you. I don't need you. I don't want you. I want to live my own life. I want to do what makes me happy. And God, you're just repressive and you're oppressive and I want nothing to do with all these rules and all these thou shalt nots. No, God, I just want to live my life. I just want to make myself happy. Whatever feels good, do it. That's, that's the human nature. And while we were feeling and acting that way, Christ died for us. The Son of God came down from heaven, became one of us, lived like one of us, as one of us, sinlessly, and then died for us as a substitute. You know, the death of Jesus on the cross was more than just an, ex more than just an example of selfless living. Some will say that. Well, look at Jesus. There's an example of, of selfless love. Yeah, that's right. But it's also much more than that. It is, it is the substitute for our sin. He died in our place. And we'll talk more about that here in just a minute. But Jesus Christ died for you even when there was nothing in your life demonstrating that you were worth dying for. It was a sacrificial love. And it's by God's divine plan. Our past redemption. Christ died for us. It's past tense. It's already happened. Christ already died on the cross and rose again, and He did that for you. Christ died for us. 
One thing that I like to do whenever we go to restaurants and eat and you got to pay your tip, especially if you use your card, you know, you, they, they bring it back to you and you got to sign, you got to write your tip in. One thing that I'll do when I write beside my tip, I'll write down Romans 5.8, you know, R-O-M 5.8. But when you do that, make sure you leave a good tip. You know, nothing else sounds just so absolutely hypocritical when people, instead of leaving a tip, they'll leave a gospel track, you know. Well, that, yeah, that, that's more valuable, giving your life to Jesus, but come on. You know, you really want to try to win somebody to the Lord while you're being cheap, right? You know, so if you're going to in any way demonstrate your Christian faith around your server, whether you're praying for your food or, or you're leaving a gospel track, make sure you bless them, all right, with a good tip. And so I like Romans 5.8 because it encapsulates so much First of all, it says God. Hello, there is a God out there. But God demonstrates His love. And so it talks about the character of God. Who is this God? The Christian God's different than any other, any other God because He's the only real God. But God demonstrates His love for us. It talks about humanity. And what about, what about humans while we were yet sinners? It talks about our need and our sin debt. It talks about the cross. Christ died for us. What a wonderful truth that is. And so as we think about our salvation, and we think about our confidence that you're right with God, it's not bound to your faithfulness. It's bound to something that Jesus already did for you. We are confident because of our past redemption, our purchase of love. But also we are confident of our pending rescue. Because of what Christ has done already, we are confident on what will happen to us in the future. We are secure in what is to come. And Paul brings that out in verses 9 and 10. We are confident of our pending rescue. Why? Because the judicial barrier has been removed. He says in verse 9, "...much more than having now been justified." If you've been coming on Sunday nights, we've been doing a study on this term justification. Paul says in Romans 5, 1 there, having been justified by faith, it is only by trusting in, surrendering to Christ that we are justified. What does justified mean? Sometimes you hear people say it means just as if I'd never sinned. And yes, that's part of the truth. That because of what Christ has done and your faith in Him, God sees you and He sees that the sacrifice of Christ has paid for your sin debt. But that would just leave you morally neutral from that point forward. Okay, my sin debt's already been paid, but now how am I going to live my life going forward? If I sin, then I could lose my justification. The biblical teaching of justification means that the righteousness of Jesus not only paid for our sins, but the righteousness of Jesus is now imputed to or written in your spiritual account that every good thing that Jesus did now he gives you the credit for it and all the bad stuff you've ever done he takes that on himself on the cross it's a balance transfer and it's a legal declaration God as the judge bangs the gavel and says not guilty but how can God do that if you've sinned how can God call you not guilty it's because First of all, His propitiation for us. Now, there's a big word that's come back again. We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 25. 
Paul says about Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Remember what that means, big word? It means absorbing the wrath. That means that that God is holy. He can't just pretend that evil never happened. He's got to punish it or he's not a good God. And so either God's going to punish you for your evil or on the cross Jesus bore the wrath of God for you. That means that your penalty, your punishment, Jesus took it. And he, and he bore it on the cross. And, G, and Paul says, by his blood, it's through his death, he died the death that you deserved. He bore the wrath of God the Father on your behalf. That's how God can declare you not guilty because the punishment, the crime, it's already been paid for. It's paid in full. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. His propitiation means for us, it's our protection in Him. Much more than having now been justified, past tense, by His blood, we shall be, future tense, saved, rescued. Now sometimes you people say, are you saved? And the response is, saved from what? And unfortunately a lot of Christians don't know how to answer that, or even answer that properly. Saved from sin, saved from hell. But the bottom line is, Paul says here, we shall be saved from the wrath of God, the punishment of God, His judgment, His justice that we deserved in Christ because of His blood and our faith in Him, we will be saved, rescued from the judgment of God, the wrath of God that is coming. We talked about last week in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. There's going to be a day in the future when Christ returns. He will punish His enemies. He will rescue His church, His people, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will be rescued. We will be preserved. We will be sheltered from that storm on that day of wrath. Because of His propitiation, Jesus bore the wrath for us. The wrath of God is no longer on us as Christians if we trust in Christ and His sacrifice. The judicial barrier has been removed, but also the relational barrier has been removed. It's the same truth, but just from a a different perspective. One's the the legal aspect in the court of law. The other is the relational aspect and our relationship, our, our intimacy of knowing Him, being in His family, being a friend of God. A relationship that was severed has now been restored and reconciled. You hear sometimes divorces happen for irreconcilable differences, but that does not need to be the case between you and God. It need not be irreconcilable in Christ. Paul says in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were enemies with God, now from whose perspective? Who's who's the one with with the uh, enmity in in their thoughts? Well, Paul's already said in in Romans 1, the wrath of God is poured out against all ungodliness. And so from God's perspective, God sees us as enemies, as sinners, as those who have rebelled against Him, and those, again, who are shaking their fist at heaven and saying, God, I don't want you, I don't need you, I hate you. So God sees us as enemies because God is holy and we are sinners, but also from the human perspective, again, mankind apart from Christ sees God as an enemy. And so while we were enemies from from both perspectives, both parties, God and man, 
While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Past tense. Reconciled. Brought back together to God. How? Through the death of His Son. Having much more, or much more having been reconciled. We see that's God's provision for us. We were enemies... And yet, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That's His divine initiative. We were, we were helpless and we were weak and we were unwilling and God took the initiative and God built, he built the bridge and He reconciled and restored us to Himself. God did that for you. He provided that for you in Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. Oh, how I love Jesus. We just sang that a minute ago, because of His provision for us. And then we see our position then in Him. Having done all of this, and you can see here that, uh, that we shall be saved. Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser in these verses. Because you look at verse 9. Much more, having then been justified by His blood... He has done this for us. Verse 10, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So look at what God has already done for you. It's His past tense. He's already sent Christ to die on the cross in your place to bring peace and reconciliation to you. He's already done all of that. Now will He not also bring it all the way to fruition? Will He not also complete what He's already started? He's done all of that heavy lifting already. The price has already been paid. Will He not also bring it to pass? Will He not save you? Is He lacking the, the desire? He's already proven He's got the desire. Is He unable? He's already proven He is able. Will He not also bring you to glory? Will He not also save you? Of course He will. Paul's saying it makes no sense to think that God's already done all that for you. Now you put your faith in Him and somehow you cannot be confident that somehow you think you have no security in God, that somehow you've got to keep maintaining that. Come on, look at what He's already done. And surely He's got the will and He's got the power to save you and keep you saved. And notice what Paul says in verse 10. We shall be saved, how? By his life. Okay, his, his death has justified us and his life has reconciled us. How does that happen? Well, there's, there's, I think, a few different ways. First of all, Christ has kept the law for you. His righteousness is given to you. His righteous life of obeying all of God's laws is now credited to you, his life saves you. Not just His death for your sins, His life that He's lived is given for you. His resurrection, He is alive. If Jesus was not raised, He's still in the tomb. Paul says we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Because if you're in Christ and Christ is still dead, you have no hope. But Christ has been raised, so His life gives us salvation. But also now that He is alive, what's He doing? Paul, uh, the New Testament says he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now makes intercession for us. He's now pleading on our behalf. He's now praying for his church. He's now empowering his church via the Holy Spirit. He is alive and his life is giving salvation and will give salvation to his people. We shall be saved because Christ is alive.
Never forget that. The relational barrier has been removed because of what Christ has done. This past week, I had to change one of my passwords on one of my online accounts. And it's getting so... Uh, it's getting so complicated now because I picked one I, I often use and it says choose one you've never used before. And I'm like, oh man, it's going to make it harder to remember. So I, I chose one that says, ah, it's too weak. It's, it, it's too easy to guess. Make it harder. So I put something else in. No, not good enough. You need more numbers. You need more, you need more uppercase letters. You need more symbols. By the time it was done, it was so complicated. I said, there's no way I can even guess this, much less someone trying to hack my account. The purpose in that is to prevent something, to block something. And in the Old Testament, we, we see that the presence of God inside the Holy of Holies of His temple, it was separate. There was a veil that separated the outside world from the presence of God. It was a passcode. It was a barrier. But Paul says, in Christ, the access to God has been removed. That now we can come to God by faith. Christ comes to live inside of us via the Holy Spirit. We now have a relationship with God. And that relationship will save us from the wrath of God that is to come. Because of what Christ has already done, we have been promised salvation. And you can have abundant hope. And you can have confidence. That doesn't make you cocky. It makes you confident because He has won the victory for you and you stand in Christ in that victory. You can be confident. I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm going to glory when Christ comes back. And it ain't because anything I've done because I don't deserve it. I deserve hell. But I'm going to heaven when I die and I've got confidence in that because of who Christ is and what He has done. We shall be saved. Not we might be saved or we could be saved. We shall be saved. That's a promise from God. And you need to claim that and cling to that and have confidence in that. No matter what your emotions or your mind or your feelings or the world tries to tell you and bring you down, stand confident in Christ because of what He has done for you. Our pending rescue. We can be confident, and we should be confident. Not cocky, because we didn't do it, but confident what He's done for us. Finally, as Christians, we should be confident in our present response. Our present response. The, the only appropriate reaction to God who has done all this for us, the only appropriate reaction is just receive it. Thank you, Lord. Give Him the praise. Give him, give him worship. Give him, give him your life. You are now a living sacrifice to God. Lord, take my life and just turn it upside down and twist it and, and flip it sideways and just send me wherever you want to go. God, I'm yours. My life is yours because you deserve everything I have to give. You deserve more than what I have to give. A living sacrifice. Praise. Paul says in verse 11, and not only this, not only what He's done for us in the past and what He will do us for us in the future. Not only this, but we also exalt in God. It's not the first time in this chapter He's used that same phraseology. I think He's building everything to a climax here. Because look at the end of verse 2. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. We, we hope that one day God will bring it to pass. 
In verse 3, not only this, we also exult in our tribulations because they, they bring about the work of God in our life and, and, and they give us even a sense of security. So we exult in hope. We exult even through our trials and tribulations and ultimately that leads us to exult in God, to glory in God. That's what the word means, to boast or to glory in. We exult, we boast in God, we glory in God because of what He's done. Isn't that the only proper response? Isn't that right for us to do that? How wrong would it be for us not to exult in God? That would be foolish. It'd be stupid. I know it's a word we're not supposed to say a lot of times, but it would be. It'd be stupid to not worship God who has done all of that for you. But notice what Paul says in verse 11. We exult in God because our only hope in the future, our only hope in the midst of tribulation is to be in God, in God alone. In God alone. So we are confident in our present response of worship. First of all, it's communal worship. It's communal. Why do we say that? Verse 11. Paul says, we also exult. It's first person plural for you grammar Nazis out there. We exult. We do this. Of course, you as an individual are called to worship and praise God, right? That's what you've been created to do. But Paul says, as a community of faith, as believers, we collectively, as a community, there's a communal sense to this. We're together. We're the body of Christ. He saved not just me. He saved you, my brother in Christ. He saved you, my sister in the Lord. He saved us together. We are in this together. We collectively, the body of Christ, we exult in God. We worship the Lord. We praise the King of glory. And we do this together. God has designed you and built you for community. To find those who believe the same way you do, who trust in the same things you do, and who glory in the Father God like you do. And He brings us together. A Christian ought to be plugged into a community of faith where verse 11 takes place. We exult as a covenant community of believers, a family of faith here at Ephesus Baptist Church. We, along with our brothers and sisters in other churches, in other denominations who who preach the true gospel, we, but church, we communally, we exult in the Lord. But also, it's, it's continual worship. Because verse 11 says, not only this, we also exult in God. That exult there, it's present tense. That means something that we do now and something that we keep on doing and we're always going to do. But we're doing it now. In the present. And we boast in God now. We glory in God now. We exult right now. It's not just that we're going to exalt God down the road. We're exalting Him now. Sometimes through trials and through the storms of life. And it gets hard and it gets difficult and it gets dark. And we feel lonely and separated. But even then, we exult in God. We exult. And think about it like this. We've only just begun. We're exulting in God now. But as the song says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 
We exult now for eternity. It's continual worship. Finally, it's conditional worship. Not only this, we also exult in God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's exclusive. You have no peace with God outside of Jesus. You have no justification in God's legal court of law apart from Christ. He's the only one who lived a sinless life for you. He's the only one who died a substitutionary death for you. He's the only one that was raised to give you victory. There's no other way, folks. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. It's not religion. It's not morality. It's Jesus. And your trust in Him, your relationship with Him. He alone accomplished the necessary work. And verse 11 goes on to say, Through whom? Through Christ. We have now, present tense, received. We've already received it. Live in that truth. Live in that possession. Conditionally, in Christ, we worship. And we have received, here it says, the reconciliation. Received is passive. We didn't, we didn't seize the reconciliation and make it our own and say, God, I'm going to be right with you. We didn't grab it. We didn't, we didn't make it happen. We received it. How do you receive it? It's passive. It's a gift. We call that grace. The grace of God is giving you something you didn't deserve and you didn't earn. And through the death of Christ and His resurrection, He says, here, you can be reconciled to me. Just receive the gift. Take the gift. Make it your own. And that's all that is required. But see, when you take that gift and you bring it and you make it your own, God begins transforming you from the inside out. The things you used to to want to do, God changes your want to. The things that you, you didn't want to do, now God makes you want to do those things. God begins to change you. It's conditional. It's in Christ. It's through Him and through Him alone. It's conditional in a sense. It's only in Jesus. But His love for us, folks, it's unconditional. You cannot out the grace of God. We think sometimes, wow, you know, I'm a Christian, but I've messed up. I wonder if God's turning His back on me now. You didn't earn your salvation in the first place. You're not going to lose it based on your efforts. If you're truly in Christ, you're saved for all eternity. How do I know I'm saved for all eternity? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Well, yes. Do you desire that God would would make you holy? Yeah, that's what I desire. Then be confident. Because it's not based in your ability. It's based solely in the righteousness of Christ and God's sovereign plan for you. Christians should be confident in their salvation based solely on the work of Christ. Two things I want to point out here real quick as we can draw this to a close. Notice the words Paul uses to describe you in me in these verses. Verse 6 says we're helpless. Also says we're ungodly. And then we move on then to verse uh, 8, while we were yet sinners. And then verse 10, while we were enemies. And some have, have seen in this a increasing emphasis. We're helpless. We're ungodly. We're sinners. We're enemies. I don't know if that's Paul's intention or not, but you can clearly see that. And the bottom line is, Paul's saying, you're hopeless. You have nothing to offer God. Spiritually, you're broke. You're bankrupt. You ain't got nothing in your account to give God. 
That's who we are apart from Christ. But notice also the emphasis of the cross in these verses. We're going to talk about confidence. Look at this, verse 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us. While we were at sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Verse 11, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ because He's the only one who died in your place. He's the only one who has done all this for you. On our own, we're hopeless. But in Christ, what He's done for you, there's hope. There's true hope. There's a hope that lasts. Some of, somebody has said before, the devil's two greatest tricks. Number one, make the lost think they're saved. Secondly, make the saved think they're lost. Folks, the gospel sheds the true light on both of those tricks. Satan's a liar. If you're lost, don't think you're saved. Don't think that somehow I'm good enough, I'm better than the other person. At least I've never done that. And if God's going to weigh on a scale my good and my bad, I hope my good outweighs the bad. Don't think you're saved by that mentality. Where do you come up with that mindset? You just make that up on your own? Because you sure didn't get that out of the Bible. So if you're lost, don't think you're saved. Come to Christ by faith and trust in His sacrifice for your sins. But secondly... If you have trusted in Jesus, if, if you have been justified by His faith, if, if you've been reconciled to God through the blood of His Son, and you come to God and say, God, I've got no other recourse. I, I fall upon Your mercy. Lord, please save me by who You are and what You've done for me and, and make me a new creation. If you've done that, you're saved. And the evidence of that, the fruit of that, ought to be a, a life of holiness. The fruit of the Spirit, sanctification. Those things flow from somebody who is truly saved. If you don't have any of that, then you're not saved. And so today, I want to encourage our believers in the faith. Be confident. It's not about what you've done for God. It's about what He has done for you. Because if it's about what you've done for God, you're being cocky. And nobody likes cockiness. But we can be confident and what Christ has done for us. And so the bottom line, the question I ask all of you all day, are you linked to the Lord by love? It's not by works, goodness, efforts. He has proved His love for you. Have you reached out your hands and grasped the truth and made it your own? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in Christ,